let's get into it. I think uh, we've got well and truly... Oh, okay, there's another one. We've got well and truly uh, a good large contingent joining us. In fact, more than I think we actually had record for, which is fantastic. Um, welcome to everybody and thank you very much for joining us uh, for the July Research Committee, yeah, I suppose it still is July, July uh, teleconference. Um, just normal housekeeping is if you can please put us on mute um, throughout my part of the talk. Uh, we've got lots of stuff to go through today, so I hope you've got the full hour because it's lots of good stuff today. As well as um, Alex is going to run through the roll call towards the end of my talk and then I'm going to take questions and answers um, as is normal. And um, please stay online for the entire thing right up until the end of the roll call. Uh, from Alex as a courtesy to um, the other people who can listen because obviously we don't want to be uh, hearing noises and things. Uh, just a reminder, on mute all the way through. I think so far so good. I'm not hearing any echo, so whoever had that problem last month looks like they've sorted it. So thank you very much. All right, let's get into this. Oh, economics. It's all about politics at the moment. Um, effectively, we, you really sort of don't know which, which thing's worse. Um, whether the Europeans are actually going to come to a plan that does something with the Greek debt, and I'll talk to you about that in a tick, or whether the silliness that's going on in Congress right now between the uh, US Republicans and Democrats will actually break the impasse and hopefully not allow the US to go into a technical default on their debt um, as at about 10.30 on Monday night. So talking about historical events all in the space of the last week or so. Anyway... Uh, let's get back to the first thing, which is the European debt. That, this issue's been uh, bubbling along for near on a year and, let's say, three months, but really, you know, come to the fore in the last couple of months as a result of the Greeks uh, finding themselves in a situation where their austerity measures have not been enough to, to create an impasse in their own debt repayments. Um, just so you're aware, the Greeks did during the month pass an austerity measure uh, set of legislation which did reduce the overall spending in government services uh, to the population. Um, as I mentioned last month, the expectation was there was going to be some social unrest and some protests. Yes, there were. No surprise there. Um, the Greeks actually don't, um, haven't endeavoured in any way, shape or form to increase their productivity, which is a real pity. Um, for those of you who may not be aware, um, their retirement age is under 60 and their working week is below 35. So um, it would be nice if they actually added their extra, you know, a little bit more work and, you know, maybe they'd actually pay themselves out of debt. So the underlying issue here and, and the real political problem is that the, the Germans and the French who are effectively financing uh, the, the overall European Union are, are justifiably saying, why the blazers should we effectively bail out the Greeks when they're the ones who put themselves into this and at the same time, uh, the ECP are saying, well, we should be bailing out the Greeks because if we allow a technical default, of the, a, a real technical default, it will mean that the European Central Bank will not be able to lend money on Greek sovereign debt. So in other words, the Greeks literally will stop off functioning as a, Europe, as a European economy. And you know, the implication is they will have no choice but to break away from the EU. So... The, the real issue here is that both of them, both of the parties who are fighting this um, are actually correct um, in their concerns, but at the same time, by being correct but not compromising, they're actually exacerbating the issue. Um, in, in terms of the research that we've received, there, there's actually a very obvious, what seems to be a very obvious solution to this, 
which is a, a two-part solution. Uh, part one solution is to actually force those bondholders in Greece to take a haircut, which effectively means if you've got a current bond at 100 cents in the dollar, that you say to those investors, I'm very sorry, but the chances of you getting 100 cents in the dollar is next to zero. You have the option today of liquidating those bonds at 80 cents in the dollar, let's say, um, and you can walk away. Now, that means a loss, but at least you know you're going to get your money back. And that money would be financed by something like the European Central Bank. The other side of the story, so that's the ECB response, that's the logical ECB response. The other side of the story is that the Germans and the French agree to actually pour money into the Greek economy in order to allow them to loosen up their financial system in order to get some production happening in order to, over multi-decades, to pay their debt down. And in part of that strategy, what also is required is that the current debt that, for example, might be due in 2013-14 needs to be what's called, it's called reframing or restructuring, which means you take a current bond that's due to lapse or mature in 2013 and you actually say, no, 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 let's just continue it now for instead of 2013, let's continue it out to 2023. And therefore, by definition, uh, the overall interest rate will fall Obviously, you know, you know your discounted cash flow that, you know, if you lengthen the term, you reduce the discount rate. Um, so therefore, the overall interest rate costs reduce to the Greeks. And the theory is eventually they'll work themselves out of this hole and eventually pay down the debt. Now, obviously, lots of parties are very suspicious around the Greeks' ability or willingness to actually ever pay down debt because, you know, the whole thing about, you know, if you keep on getting a gift, you expect more gifts. Um, so... This is, this is fundamentally the impasse that the Greeks are finding themselves in. Um, they, the good news, I suppose you could say, um, and the reason why the Greek crisis is actually now second stage news compared to the US story, is because the Greeks have actually passed the austerity measures to allow the first step of that strategy to occur, which is the uh, offering of debt at a haircut rate as well as the offering of funds from the Germans and the French in order to keep the Greeks going. So. Um, in reality, you know, it, it is, the strategies are really not fixing the problem. They are kicking the can down the road. Um, however, that it does give the opportunity for the EU to stay together, and which is very important to the Germans and the French. You see, um, even if they do what to them is, is inconceivable, which is basically bail out the Greeks and allow the reframing of debt, if they don't do it, they're running a terrible risk that the EU, and by definition, the first thing that will fall apart is the euro. So what you'll end up having is a situation where the Greeks will have to have no choice but to go back to the diner, uh, the Italians will have no choice but to go back to the lira, and so on. So, you know, the Spanish back to the peso, so that sort of stuff. And that, that is in no way, shape or form a good thing for the euro, um, and the two biggest economies, being the French and the Germans, are very, very, um, they benefit greatly from having the euro as a, as a single block unit for economic growth and trade. So that's the, that's the picture. Um, everybody's agreed something needs to be done. The question is, what's your method? And, um, you know, as a, as from in the cold light of research, what seems to be some very obvious strategies are not necessarily what's necessarily going to happen because politicians being who they are, um, you know, they've got their own particular issues and their own way of looking at things um, when they go back to the constituents. So that's the, that's the Greek issue. On a, on a, from a matrix perspective, we believe that, the, um, that these strategies will come to pass. 
Uh, in fact, the best possible strategy is the offer of bond sale at a haircut rate because if you're a current investor sitting on a, on a very distressed Greek debt, um, let's, put, let's put it this way, I think most of us would probably take 80 cents in the dollar and walk away from it rather than trying to stay in. Um, what, the, what the strategy also does is it, is it belts the hedge funds. Um, you may not be aware, but a large number of hedge funds speculated on Greek, Greek debt about a year ago when this first blew up. And um, what, the Greeks and the, uh, what the Greeks and the ECB are trying to say is, well, if they were silly enough to speculate, let them take the loss because that's what hedge funds are all about. So that's the... It's, it's obviously, you know, there's obviously a lot of lobbying going in the background and the hedge funds are whinging and, you know, that sort of stuff is, is basically the normal course of business for Europeans and unfortunately Europeans, um, because they've got such disparate political systems, you know, they are the cradle of Western civilization. There's a lot of history there. Um, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to get a coordinated response from, you know, you know, 16 or 17 different economies with all the, you know, different particular requirements and wishes. So that's, that's issue number one. Um, I think somebody, unfortunately, hasn't got me on hold because I'm getting some um, echo. It is, it is really important to put me on, on mute, not hold, mute, sorry. Uh, please put me on mute because I'm getting an echo. Um, okay, so next thing, of course, is probably the big issue, the one that's happened in the last two weeks. Your clients right now, no doubt, have probably shifted from what the Blazers is, this Greek thing, to what the Blazers the US people are doing. Um, you know, if, I, if, I, if this teleconference was two weeks ago, the market was at 47.70. Um, here we are today at 45, so I think again. Um, largely because of this ridiculous situation where the US has to formally approve via Congress and have approved by the Senate an increase to effectively their, per, their personal overdraft. Now, in order for the US economy to actually operate, they must pass this piece of law. That's a fact. The, the stupidity, if you like, here is the Republicans and the Democrats are disagreeing, again, on how to do it. So the, the US has to create a situation where they're allowed to borrow a higher amount. And the, vicinity, the amount that's being talked about is in the vicinity of $2.7 trillion, if I remember correctly. That $2.7 trillion is going to be hit on Monday night at 10... Sorry, we'll be... Sorry. 2.7 will get them passed. Where they are today, which I believe is below $2 trillion, will actually be hit at about 10.30 on, on Monday night, which is basically open for business for Monday morning. Uh, the effect of this will be is that if they don't formally approve the legislated amount that the US government is allowed to borrow totally from the world, so that's basically external, external lenders as well as internal lenders, the effect of this will be is come Tuesday morning, if you were to turn up at a national park in the US, it will be closed. Um, if you were to expect it to have your garbage collected by um, somebody from the federal, you know, somebody from government, it, you would not have it collected. So some very, very serious implications. Um, military pensions won't be paid. Centrelink, or what they call Centrelink, won't be paid. So this is extremely important. Um, now, the US will take money from the, from the world regardless of whether they pass the legislation. The problem is, by, if they don't pass the legislation, then the ratings agencies come in and they say, well, you haven't passed the legislation. The government is now borrowing more than they're authorised to borrow. 
And as a result of that, we are now going, we're now effectively calling you an unauthorised borrower on the market and therefore the ratings agencies would then come in and say, well, instead of you being the highest rated economy in the world at AAA, we're now, now going to downgrade you to double, double small A, one big A. Okay, let's say that's the S&P approach. And the implication of that, and I know some advisors have called me about that, is that what it would then mean is that the US was then trying to borrow money on, the, on Tuesday, which they have to do, is that every other creditor in the world would have every right to require a higher interest rate than they would on Monday. Okay, so this is the big issue, is that overall cost of debt for the US as a country goes up on Tuesday unless they approve this. So it's not like, it's not like they're not going to keep borrowing, it's just that they become an unauthorised borrower on market. So it's extremely important. The, um, the, the research committee believes that whilst the Republicans and Democrats are being completely stupid about this and they're arguing about the methodology, um, that, that we do believe that, that, that the impasse will be broken. Um, to me, this is not too dissimilar to when the, the US was uh, working on the weekend just prior to the, um, the Lehman's collapse. Uh, you know, they didn't actually go home at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, go home to their families, turn up on Monday and find the world's come to an end. They worked right through the weekend. This is what's expected to happen. There will be a breakdown in the impasse. There has been some proposals um, that have been issued. However, um, the, the part of the difficulty is that people are only human. They can only work 24 hours in a day. And this is so late that, that the actual legislation drafting is going to be extremely precious. Um, so even if they agreed tonight for argument's sake that the legislation would be passed, it does put an extreme amount of pressure on the legislating drafters to have it delivered prior to Monday. So um, this, is, this is basically what the, what the overall US situation is. Um, the, what this really brings into cold light of day is that, that if we think that Australia's got problems in terms of governmental issues, and we definitely do have lots of problems in terms of the hung parliament and the Labor, Labor, Labor in power, um, please, you know, we need to make sure that our clients are well aware that this issue is, is world and widespread um, in the Western economy. So if you're talking about Europe, US and Australia, let's just say that whole group of sets of economies and countries are currently in an untenuous political situation. Um, and it, it's extremely difficult to get legislation through that has any, any controversy <coughs> attached to it whatsoever. So we, we believe that, um, that the, these particular issues will be resolved over time. All that's basically happening is you've got two or three hundred people in the world effectively holding the, the futures of four billion people in the world in their hands and because of arguing, they're, they're just exacerbating everyone's pain. Um, you know, the example that, that um, Alex and Anna have also put in here is obviously the, the uncertainty around carbon tax with regard to Australia. Um, you know, without being political, it's all well and good to say we're only going to tax 500 companies, but it's obvious that these 500 companies are the 500 companies with competitive and market power. Clearly, they will pass on the pricing. They've already done so. They've done so in anticipation of a carbon tax, and therefore, by definition, prices have risen, and therefore, by definition, inflation has risen. So you've seen a, an increase of the overall inflation to well above the, um, the, the RBA target rate uh, of 3%, and it's actually rolled to 3.6%. And by definition, if I was sitting on the RBA board next, work, next month, normally what would happen is an interest rate rise. Now, unfortunately, this is where the, rocket, you know, the country's in a rock and a hard place. What's logical economically would actually be a disaster for overall business 
because you know increasing interest rates in this environment for everybody but the resources sector would not be good. I think we can all acknowledge. So, um, you know, anything that the government does to increase overall prices is a is a problem. Um, uh, but you know, politics being what it is, they don't necessarily you know acknowledge or realise this. Um, however, we do believe the Reserve Bank is smart enough to realise that that what we're actually seeing is a flow-on effect of people's expectations of price increases, um, and not and you know I think the risk of an interest rate rise has actually reduced. Whether or not that some people you know two weeks ago were talking about an interest rate fall, I don't think that's on the table. It's it's my, you know as far as the research committee is concerned, we think they will keep rates where they are for a while yet. Um, so talking about mixed e economic, you know, economic story. So we've got heightened political risk across the world, but interestingly, the actual economics, the the real productive output of the world, being companies um, in Australia, for example, we're talking about the resource sector, the energy sector, certain flow-on sectors like services are doing quite well. Yet there has been a fall in um, overall consumer confidence, but the corporate environment's looking very, very solid. Um, companies are sitting on what is effectively the strongest balance sheets they've ever had, highest levels of cash they've ever had, and they're continuing to pay out record dividends. Um, we, we do and are seeing a continuation of overall consumption and overall GDP. It's just that the GDP number, which is this big arbitrary number called, let's say, 3%, that number is actually changing in where it's coming from. So you're getting a very wide, um, disparate mix between it coming from the, um, you know, for example, in Australia, the resources and energy sector having a, po a very strong positive growth and you're having a negative growth in, say, retail. But when you aggregate it all together, it looks like Australia is chugging along at 3%. Um, so you'd almost say that if you, were, if you were to break Australia up into pieces, you could say that the retail sector is in recession whilst the resources sector is in boom. Um, and that's actually where the statistics sometimes cover up the reality. As an overall economy, we actually are very fortunate, as you probably would be aware. I mean, there's certainly lots of things to be very positive about. Uh, what we're really talking about is a resolution of a whole bun bunch of political issues. Um, we don't necessarily expect we'll get back to the heady days of the 1990s and 2000s. I think that's completely unrealistic. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more later on about the client presentation the research committee, with a lot of help, have, have put together for you. Um, but really talking about, you know, what was normal? You know, do we really think 2003, 2007 was normal? No, it isn't. Uh, we don't, definitely don't think 2007 to 2010 was normal either. So, um, you know, talking about the, you know, one of the people that's probably got the closest pulse to, um, to the overall economy is Glenn Stevens and the RBA board. He is still issuing communications on a non-political basis that, you know, with all the information he has, the economy is doing quite well, but he's obviously recognised the very, very different or two-speed economy story, you know, the, the difference in, you know, one area doing extremely well, another, another area not doing so well. If I use an example of the US, the US corporate environment has never been stronger. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, Apple last week issued a profit result which showed a 100% increase in year-on-year -year profit for Apple. Now, that does not reflect a company in trouble. Uh, and Apple's not the only one, Coca-Cola, Microsoft and so on. So, so obviously a lot lower re results than that. So the upshot of it is, in the US, for example, the story is not so much about resources versus other businesses. In the US, it's all about big corporates doing extremely well and the average consumer not doing as well at, at all because, of course, they're, they're, 
their um, economic well-being is tied up with house prices and house prices and house transactions is the one area that your research committee is seeing where it hasn't really turned for the better. It's still struggling. And, uh, you know, we don't necessarily see there's a great, you know, great picture ahead of us just yet. Okay, so that's the economics. Let's move on to the, uh, the overall asset classes. I mentioned the, the issue with the inflation rate. Interest, inflation typically when it rises above the RBO rate normally triggers them to, to boost interest rates. Um, however, we believe that there's a lot of other things in play here that, that we won't necessarily see an interest rate rise until 2012 and certainly not until, you know, um, things basically these issues flow through the system. So at the moment we're running at a cash rate of 4.75. We're obviously still seeing term deposits at, at um, you know, 6 to 6.1, 6.2. So our, our environmental view in terms of the research committee's position says that if you're looking at your, at your defensive assets, let's talk about your defensive assets, we believe that a cash, cash slash TD position overweight relative to other fixed interest is still appropriate, particularly for those clients who are more risk averse. And let's just put it this way, I think most clients, even the more aggressive clients, are more risk averse than what they were three years ago. Moving on to fixed interest. Fixed interest is an interesting area because, you know, if, if you were asking the research committee what we thought, we actually thought a lot of the good performance was actually gone out of the, uh, particularly the corporate fixed interest, probably six months ago, as you would know, for those people who've been listening for a long time. However, there are still some significant good performance numbers coming out of uh, um, out of the fixed interest area and part of this is a, is a speculation of the relative performance of fixed interest within Australia compared to other countries and you know to answer another advisor's question which I think is a fantastic one is that if if the silly thing happens and the US actually goes into technical default by definition because of this you know unauthorized borrowing story even if it is for a small period of time it actually increases the relative attractiveness of Australian bonds for argument's sake and Canadian bonds for argument's sake. So those resource rich countries. So it is actually possible that you see an Australian and Canadian fixed interest rally off the back of a US default. Now that's just bizarre, but that's a reality. Okay, or well, sorry, that will be a reality if it turns out the US actually has, a, has an issue with their default. So, um, you know, keep that one on the radar. For that reason, those exposures we have to, um, to fixed interest, if you remember, at one stage a while ago, we used to be more heavily weighted to sovereign debt. We got out of sovereign debt, uh, fortunately, when the Greek thing first started erupting. So that's been a good call. We, we reduced our, our exposure to sovereign debt and we were more largely in the corporate sort of hybrid area anyway because we do believe that com companies who are issuing high profit numbers are extremely unlikely to not be able to pay their debt. I think we can all understand that. Okay, moving on to property. We maintain an underweight position of property. Property's been a massive seesaw uh, for about the last 12 to 18 months. Um, global property's been interesting because in, it, as at the year to June 2011, it has actually been the best performing sub-asset sub class. You might be wondering why we still maintain this underweight. Please understand that the only reason why the global, um, global property area has been the best performer is because it has only rebound from the despicable results of 2008-9, um, it is still down um, and for example as you can see from the slides here that over the five years it still only generated 0.47% in local currency terms. 
So even the worst asset class other than global property is still better than that. So we look at investing, as you know, from a three-year term, and our three-year um, uh, time horizon, uh, they've issued, a, you know, that asset class has issued a 2.95%. So we believe it's still an appropriate call, but we're not against property, as you would know. For the last, you know, probably six to nine months, we've been saying that we're not anti-property. We just don't believe a LPT-only fund manager can find the best opportunities anymore. Uh, we're expecting that that actually the opportunity selection is better coming out of the equities area and it actually is. So that's the good news. Moving on to Australian equities. Australian equity index has fallen by 1% uh, for the month of the 21st of July. I think as at the last couple of days it's probably a lot worse than that. It's probably more like 2 or 3 um, percent. So uh, that's not good. The, um, the resources area whilst in the slides was probably um, probably still doing okay. I think it's probably um, now the other way. I think resources have been built in the last few years significantly. Okay. So, so I would suspect that the resources and industrials are probably down um, as a result. The um, in interestingly small caps seem to be still outperforming. That sort of reflects uh, is a reflection of that two-speed economy and where the economic activity is coming from. Um, we we obviously, as we always do when we get to our July teleconference, we say to you, look. The key thing here in terms of the real value in the share market will really come out in the next four weeks as a result of the annual reporting season. Uh, reporting season has just started um, and, and will go until the, um, the cut-off date by the ASX, which is the 29th of August, I believe, something like that, um, when most, uh, most companies will be required to report. Obviously, what they've done in the past profits is likely to be reasonably good. What we're really looking for is um, is actually expectations, and as you as you can see there, that you've got a two to one ratio of downgrades versus upgrades, and that's a reflection of the difficulty in the economy. If I said to you the 58 upgrades are going to be likely to be things like um, you know the resources areas, energy areas, services to resources, energies obviously, and 130 downgrades will be heavily weighted towards consumer discretionary and retail. No surprises there. Um, so what we'll be looking for though is the overall outlook statement. Please you know, recognise the fact that when you're comparing a term deposit to a, to a bunch of good quality Australian shares, you know, please don't let your clients forget that current companies are paying historically high dividend levels, well above the 4% average. Currently all, the, all, the four, all four banks, so pick a bank, and they're paying well over 55 before the tax benefits which means if you've got a client in accumulation phase particularly, it's a, it's, even with price gyration, it's a pretty hard argument to say that a term deposit's better than Australian shares. In addition to that is valuations. Valuations are currently running on a, on a retrospective basis of 11.3. Long-term average um, is well above that and <coughs> at 14 to 15 times. Do you know, if this wasn't a politically charged environment, this would be a screaming buy of a market. Now, we've got to take reality in the case. Yes, there is political issues. So, but as you know, a week is a long time in politics, so um, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot for things to be fixed. Um, obviously, there's always a risk that it can get worse, but um, you know, I think a lot of issues are already on the table. So, um, and that applies to not just Australia, but also the US and Europe. Um, the Europeans obviously um, have got a lot of work to do. International equities, uh, we continue to be happy with our position in our overweight position with regard to international equities towards emerging markets. 
Um, I think we will probably need to have a good look at our US exposure, our specific US exposure in our model portfolios. Up until one or two months ago, it, it was a fantastic idea. I think about a month ago, it no longer was a good idea. Um, you know, who would have thought we'd be here, but there you go. Um, so I, I think we're almost at the stage now where, you know, unless the US can break the deadlock, uh, we probably do have to have a serious look at our, our direct exposure to the US. However, um, our exposure to large cap international companies has been a, a very, very good result. And we, I suppose the message here with the overall international is we're maintaining our neutral position to benchmark on international. We do believe there is some significant uh, but moderate upside risk to the overall US dollar, Aussie dollar story. That will, in some, to some extent, temper our international returns. However, the, the large corporates around the world are doing quite well. So we're holding a neutral position. I think what you'll see, and I'll talk a little bit about model portfolios a bit later on, after I get back online, after Alex does his uh, fund review, is that you'll see us having a look at some specific, almost inter-tactical asset class uh, discussions in our next model portfolio review. And as I said, I'll talk about that in a tick. But with that, I'm going to pass to Mr. Alex, who's going to talk to us about uh, some interesting fund interviews that um, he and Rob McGregor have done over the past month. Okay. Thanks a lot, Rick. Uh, yeah, we'll just move straight into the, the fund uh, managers that we saw during the during July. And as uh, Rick uh, alluded to, what we're, what we're doing, what we've been doing in the last couple of months is just really setting ourselves up for the um, August-September model portfolio review and really just going through some of the managers on the, on the models and, and determining if, if we want to keep them. Um, so we're just trying to build up our, our, our positions on some of those um, companies and getting a better feel for where they are and where, where we think they'll go and then determining if they're still appropriate uh, in, the, uh, in the model portfolios. And one of those was um, Hyperion, which, uh, which we saw um, as our first manager. Now, Hyperion, um, I guess similar to some of the other managers that we've seen in, um, in, recent, uh, in recent months, has, has also, in, 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 the, in the past one year or so, has really struggled in, in their performance. Um, so once again, we always uh, you know, question the manager in terms of you know, an explanation to what has occurred and, uh, and see if that seems plausible. So, They've made the argument to us that it was really an underweight exposure to resource stocks and, and resource service providers, um, arguing the case that the fundamentals for those corp uh, companies just wasn't there and it didn't meet their strict uh, criteria and therefore they were underexposed to some of those uh, companies as those resource stocks performed quite uh, strongly in, in recent months, um, they, they, uh, they underperformed. They also made the comment as well, I guess a more broader comment that um, and I guess this really comes down to you know, a lot of the issues going on o overseas that uh, sediment is playing a much bigger role in, uh, in the market's performance um, between, the, between the reporting seasons. And when it comes to reporting seasons, that, that, that's when the company's f um, fundamentals really come out to play and that, that gets, um, that gets um, inputted into the price. So what they're, what they're arguing on, on that point is that uh, during the reporting season and probably post the reporting season, uh, their performance will pick up as the market essentially realises that um, take some of the sediment out of the, uh, out of the price and put more of the company's uh, fundamentals into that price and that's where they think that uh, performance will pick up. Anyway, our decision was to retain it on the proof list. Obviously, we're going to be very, um, very interested in how they perform in the, in the next couple of months and, and that will lead up nicely into the model, um, model portfolio discussion. Next manager we saw, and this was a new manager, um, it's called HIP, 
um, AIP Asia Pacific Partners Fund. Bit of a, a bit of a mouthful there. Um, we really looked at them because what, what we've been doing, and we also saw another manager last month, um, a manager you're probably a lot more aware of, Macquarie, who also do like a smaller cap Asian fund. Uh, we decided not to, you may recall, we decided not to uh, put the Macquarie fund on the approved list, but we, so we decided to look at a few other managers in the space, and this AIP was one of them. Um, much smaller group, much more boutique. Um, they've got some solid backing from a large uh, uh, South African corporate. Um, very interesting fund as well, a little bit different from the Macquarie Fund um, in that it uh, looks more at really the, uh, the smaller to medium cap uh, where the uh, Macquarie looks at small cap um, Asian funds, uh, Asian stocks. Um, once again, a limited, uh, a limited uh, performance history on that and, uh, and on, on that basis and, and a few other issues that, uh, that we, we thought in relation to it, we decided not to approve. But that's not to say we may not come back to either you know, Macquarie and ADIP and have a look at it again, uh, just to see uh, maybe when they get a bit more performance, just to see how they're performing and consider them for the approved list. Uh, another manager that we picked up on, um, which is a new manager, it's called Intrinsic. Um, these are also a specialised uh, fund manager, um, just focusing on the Australian equity market. Uh, really the point here was that, uh, and we, we picked this up early on in the discussion, was that they're really focusing on uh, mandates and, and high net worth types of clients, institutional mandates and high net worth types of clients. So essentially, unfortunately, they don't really fit uh, in our space in terms of you know, the managed fund, uh, managed fund type of space, managed accounts they're, they're still working on. So we've, uh, we, we, we had a look at them. They're quite interesting. They do a very concentrated portfolio. Our performance has been very strong. Uh, by them, but until I guess they move closer into, into in the type of market and type of clients we'd be looking at, then we, we just couldn't approve them. But something that we'll definitely have on the back of our minds and really reconsider uh, in the months to come. Finally, the last manager we saw, and uh, this you, you may kind of record this in terms of ING um, when they when they put out a press release in terms of selling their Australian investment management business to UBS. Um, we got quite a lot of uh, media, media press at the time. It's very important, I guess, because we have a number of the ING funds on the approved list to really uh, catch up with them and get a better feel. This was more of a corporate type of discussion in terms of what's, uh, what's going to happen. And, uh, and to be honest, they weren't able to provide us or couldn't provide us with a lot of detail in terms of how the investment management team would, uh, would change over, over time as they, as they uh, move over to UBS. Um, I think, you know, just to, to err, err on the side of caution for the business, we decided that in, in, in that type of circumstance, until we get some more information, it's probably better to actually put these, uh, put these funds on hold. Um, we've got a number of funds there, as you can probably see from the slides. Most of them are diversified funds, um, but there's also a, a global property securities fund and an Australian share fund. Um, so the position is to actually put these, put these funds on hold, and I guess in terms of uh, looking at a replacement if, if you're in those funds, especially in the diversified funds. We have a range of diversified managers on the approved list and likewise really with the Australian share fund. But obviously when the models come out, you'll probably see some of the, uh, the managers that we're kind of preferring uh, in the Australian equity space. Just one other manager I'll talk about, and this wasn't one of the meetings we had, but um, you may have this received a little less press, but uh, it was still quite important from our perspective because Integrity is also one of the managers on our approved list. Uh, you may, be, may recall Integrity was uh, built out of um, Paul Fiani, who used to be at UBS. Uh, he moved and built his own um, boutique manager. Uh, 
I think it was about last year or early last year we actually put this management, sorry, it could have been the year before, to, uh, to be honest, uh, that we put the Integrity Australian Share Fund on the approved list. Once again, these boutique managers usually have a better ability to outperform compared to some, to some of the lar larger managers, and we were quite um, impressed with uh, Paul, Paul at that time. Things have, um, things have changed, unfortunately, at Integrity, and, and what's happened, there's been an internal legal dispute. Um, the bottom line, I guess, from, from our perspective is that probably Paul and his, uh, his management team <coughs> are going to struggle to spend time thinking about um, managing the money when they've still got this legal issue um, outstanding. So we thought it was appropriate um, to actually put integrity on hold. Um, you may also recall from last year that uh, the manager 452, um, which, um, which ended up, um, I guess, you know, the management from 452 actually left. 452, the, the, the funds, they were actually placed under the, uh, the, the, uh, the management of integrity as well. So we'd already had that fund on hold, so that one retains its hold status. And so the integrity, uh, the integrity number one fund, the original integrity fund, that's now also on hold status. So please, uh, bring your, I wanted to bring your attention to that. Things may change in terms of um, that legal dispute. Um, I think performance has also struggled a little bit with integrity. So both of those factors together did... Um, now we did, know why. Now we know why. <laughs> um, so that's another manager we've just had to put on hold. And once again, uh, looking at the model portfolios and the review that we'll go through, you'll see some of the other managers that we're preferring. And if you're in integrity, that might be a, a place to move it to. I'll put you back onto Rick just to start going through some of the other sections. Okay. Um, I know quite a few of you are aware of and have asked about um, a project that um, the research team has been working on on your behalf for about a month or so, or maybe two or three weeks or so, which is basically a client discussion of what's going on in the market and what you might do about it. Um, there's two reasons why we've put this document together. One of the reasons was because uh, quite a few of you have given feedback via your practice development managers that you're concerned that clients are going to see, um, obviously seeing what's going on in the media. The media is beating up, obviously the, you know, the, you know, my God, the world is coming to an end sort of stuff. And you're concerned that clients will react by unfortunately doing, uh, you know, the move to cash without actually thinking about it. That's part one. Part two is that there are some of our platforms who don't adequately issue um, investment market performance discussions to to the clients with their annual report. So we thought, look, um, we've spent a significant amount of time working on this and and effort and money, to be honest, as well, um, in producing what is effectively a three double-sided page document with a couple of chart slides for you to use with the clients. Now, we've very, very carefully ensured that we've kept uh, all the jargon out of the document. Um, it's going to be written in almost a newsletter form. In fact, Tracy right this minute is finalising it and she's putting it into a form that looks fantastic. Um, it's all going to be full colour. It'll be uh, put and sent to you electronically this afternoon uh, for you to give, um, which uh, that was our target to get it to you before the end of the month and before the uh, platform started issuing um, these, these reports. Um, yeah, as far as the, the paper's concerned, there's a couple of things. First up, please don't send it to your clients without reading it. Um, you've got to read it in its entirety yourself. There's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, firstly, it is not a document that just tells people time in the market rather than timing, okay? It, 
it gives a very frank discussion of exactly what's going on. We think that after three or four years of the GFC that your clients really um, are in a position where some of the detail that we sometimes talk about at the research committee wouldn't be bad to be presented to them in an English version, if you like, a more you know, common language version, uh, to help you with that. The other thing also is it talks about Matrix's view, the Matrix Research Committee's view about what's going on and what we think. And we're making key points here about the fact that we haven't got a crystal ball, we don't expect advisors or ourselves to have a crystal ball, but based on all this information we're talking to you about, Mr and Mrs Smith, do you see how we're coming to this conclusion? We are also acknowledging the fact that some of your clients need to have a discussion with you about their strategic portfolios and whether they're appropriate given what's going on um, around whether or not their income versus growth or aggressive versus defensive mix is in place. And normally this is review time, so it's not like we're saying anything that you wouldn't already say to them. It's just helping you reinforce it. There are four key charts. Um, the first chart relates to typical recoveries after, after market crises. Obviously there's been lots of them. Uh, and just to make the point that, you know, if you think that that a, a, a crisis just keeps happening forever and ever and you never get a recovery of a large description, think again. There is, <coughs> there is usually a fairly significant recovery. The second chart is probably the one that a lot of you will use because it makes the point that if you invest in term deposits um, if, at versus, let's say, just straight Australian shares, you are significantly worse off over a period of time. And, um, you know, that still holds true. Um, the third chart's probably everyone, going to be everyone's favourite. I'm not sure if any of you guys get the Vanguard um, uh, market chart that comes out every July, August, but we've managed to get a soft copy of it and put it into this document, and it actually shows a historical basis of all these different happen things that have happened over history and shown how the markets moved relative to each other, like each asset class, you know, things like when elections happened, when recessions happened, what the inflation rates were, uh, what interest rates were. Because what we're trying to remind clients of is that in 2000, uh, for example, you know, we, or sorry, in the early 90s, we had an interest rate of 17%. In 2003, we had an interest rate of 5%. A reduction of interest, rate, interest rates, for example, of that amount is only going to um, excite the market. And if, you, if people think that that's normal, it's not. Likewise, we're trying to make the point that when a market readjusts itself, it's also not normal. Um, we're making the point that the real issue here is political instability, or let's call it political lack of ability to make a decision. Uh, we're, not, we're calling a spade a spade, um, and we're ultimately saying to clients, you really need to talk to your advisors about looking at specifically what you need to achieve your goals. And we're using these charts to support our position. The final chart, the fourth chart, is on the back page, and what it does, it's the old chart that talks about what's the best performing asset class year on year. And you would think that somehow the GFC's changed things, but it really hasn't. Nothing's, nothing's different this time. Um, the fact is, you know, last year's best performer isn't next year's best performer, and it just keeps happening again and again. So what we, we don't necessarily want clients to think we're trying to tell them to stay in the market at all costs. What we're really trying to say to them is have a think before you decide to get too scared. Are you investing for, for next week or are you invested for 10 years? And I, I think off the back of this document, you can have some really solid discussions with your clients around 
um, you know, what might work for them, whether they're in a pension or an accumulation mode. So we really hope you use this. Uh, we've put a huge amount of effort in here, and when you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, we've, uh, we've obviously, as I said, a big part of the time is actually converting a lot of what we talk about into English, uh, as in non-research committee English, but, you know, common language English. Uh, stuff that these people should be able to associate with when they watch the TV and go, yeah, I see what, I see what you're talking about. Um, my suggestion to you as advisors, and this is only my suggestion if I put the MD hat on, is that just don't give it to them. Talk them through it. Okay? If you talk them through it, they will absorb stuff in it. Uh, it does talk about, for example, there's a couple of things in here where it actually talks about, you know, questions you might say or the client might be thinking, when is this thing going to finish? When is things going to get better? Why shouldn't I put my money in term deposits? You know, what am I really looking at in an advice situation? Because the other point we're trying to make here is that advice is much more than just the investments. Okay, so um, we do think it will help you. Uh, it certainly will do a, um, a, a better job than many, many, many of the reports I've seen from a lot of the platforms. Um, and I, I really hope you guys like it. Um, and obviously you'll be free to use it. We're going to send it in soft copy, which means you don't have to worry about printing. You just go for your life and you know, print off as you see fit or even you know, use your laptop to go through it with the client or whatever you want to do. So, um, so hopefully you, you, you like it. Um, also, if you've got any feedback, uh, please be aware that this is not something that we would necessarily uh, um, go and do Every month, we do do a client-based PowerPoint presentation that we that we prepare after this one every month. But we're not intending to produce this level of document every month. We might think about doing it every year because of the platform issue. Um, if Oasis ever actually does a decent document for the end of financial year reports, we might stop doing it. But at least you know for the foreseeable future, we'll prepare these to help you out. Um, so, as I said, when you see it, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. And it will be sent um, at or around 4.30 this afternoon. So, a bit of light, but, you know, weekend reading for you. Okay, uh, moving on to model share portfolios. If you remember last month, uh, we had a, a special adjustment that was made by Morningstar, one of those rare occasions where they have a little fiddle intra-quarter. Uh, on the income portfolio, they've made some changes in the balance and the growth portfolio. Look, I'm not going to go through each one specifically. Um, I suppose it makes the point, again, that you, you want to be clear and sure about your use of model portfolios. Remember that um, at, le at least at this time, we at least have these portfolios on Hub24 as an SMA, which means if you use them, you wouldn't have to do an ROA. If you wanted to do them via super, of course, you are more, more than welcome to do so uh, via BT. Um, and, um, and watch this space for some other platforms. So um, we believe this is going to be a growing area. In fact, we're quite sure it'll be a growing area for you. Uh, Martin Place Securities um, is a... Uh, oh, sorry, before I stop, um, Aud Manette has sorted out their issues. As I mentioned, I think I might have mentioned... Did we mention that last month? We did? Okay, brilliant. Okay, as you, okay, so we mentioned that. Martin Place Securities is a specialist broker that deals with just... Um, uh, IPOs and placements of small cap resources. Uh, they are only appropriate for wholesale clients. Uh, you would never send them to Mr. and Mrs. Smith. We are talking about wholesale clients only to these brokers. But uh, Martin Place Securities are very, very uh, targeted with the, uh, the real resources, small cap IPO. Now, interestingly, when they do well with an IPO, they shoot the lights out. When they do poorly, they really do poorly. 
Okay, so it is a matter of, you know, you, you, if you're going to do this with a client and discuss it with a client, don't pick and choose the IPOs, for God's sake, because the client will not end up with a good, good result. I can promise you that, because we've seen their results, which they've, which they've gladly handed over. Um, at the same time, they are, um, they are a specialist in the world of resources and energy for those small caps. Um, just in general business, uh, this is the, I think this is the last teleconference which will only be by phone. Um, from some feedback you've given us, as well as some, you know, always us trying to make, you know, make things a little better, uh, we're actually going to run this teleconference via a thing called GoToWebinar and GoToMeeting. Uh, that means that you'll be able to see the slides on your screen as I'm flicking them, uh, hear my voice via the phone. Um, I'm not even going to pretend to know how the technology works, so I'm not even going to talk about it, but I'm sure Alex, Anna and Tracy will be the experts who will explain all this. Maybe not Alex. <laughs> Alex is laughing. Let's say Anna and Tracy are going to be the experts in explaining how the blazes we all do this, but um, a, a pretty groovy new way of doing it. I think maybe the Prospera teleconference has been, has, been, has already been run like this, so anybody who's been on a Prospera teleconference would know what I'm talking about. And the new advisor induction has been run like this as well. So anybody who's seen one of these, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, it, it'll be something good. Anyway, I'll give you more of a backwards-forwards sort of responsive, interactive experience, I think. Okay, which finally leads me to the last bullet point on this slide, which is a monster in reality. Okay, we've just finished our matrix model, uh, platform review for 2011. Uh, there's a few motivations for this. Number one is obviously because we do it anyway. As you would imagine, we do, a tele we do a large tender to the platforms, ask them to come back. This year, we sent 99 questions to each of the platforms in the market. Um, uh, and basically got our responses back. We've collated the information and presented it to board. Um, I'll give you the heads up now because I want to talk a bit more about it next month. But, um, but the upshot is, is our preferred platforms have stood up quite well um, and they remain Oasis, BT in the normal badge space, Hub24 stood up extremely well, uh, Australian Super, we put it through the rigours just like everyone else, did extremely well, as did Colonial First State First Choice. Um, the other platforms who we reviewed um, will be either, have already either been approved or will be approved, we expect, in the coming months. Uh, they did reasonably well, but obviously not as well as those five. Um, the platform review itself, is, it's interesting because the other motivation that I didn't mention was obviously looking at FOFA and the FOFA response. Um, our response to platforms obviously is a key element of how we respond to FOFA. So if you think about the three big things in FOFA being opt-in, risk commissions, which with, you know, with any luck someone will see some sense and not ban them. Um, and then of course the platform review. This, it's very important that we have platform review um, completely understood. So we've done our service review. We're currently completing commercials. Um, so that's the, that's the first bit of news. So those five are in play. Uh, the next bit is just a quick mention on Australian Super. Um, I'm happy to tell you about an hour and a half ago I executed the Australian Super contract. Okay, um, they, uh, they were very easy to deal with, no problems at all. Um, the fee ranges that, you, that you, those people who replied back to me told me have been incorporated in this agreement, so I'll talk a bit more about that later on. Um, I've been in communication with Kim March. Kim has told me that they've, they've done the, the actual presentation. They're having a bit more of a delay on the IT part of it in terms of the accreditation, so they think it's sort of... It's, it's in its final stages, but we're probably not going to see it, if you like, until about mid-August. 
Um, as mentioned on my last email about Australian Super, we are going to organise a teleconference or go to webinar where the Australian Super guys will be available for you to ask Tintac questions um, in amongst that accreditation for those advisors who are accredited. For those advisors who I haven't spoken to yet, please don't be concerned. Um, it's just because I've been so busy working on the platform review, which is obviously the, the thing in these contracts. Um, I'll, what I'll be doing is talking to you about the, you know, the things that we need to discuss as far as you know how you get to an accreditation status. So for those of you online uh, who I haven't already spoken to yet, um, just bear with me, guys. It's just a matter of basically finding finding time to make lots of phone calls. So um, you know, what, hold that thought. I mentioned earlier on, and Alex mentioned earlier on, a model portfolio review. We are thinking, given the fact that what's going on in the market at the moment, as well as the fact that we actually brought forward our last platform review from March to February, that we may well bring our next model portfolio review early and make it August, which means you might be hearing the results of the, the review uh, this time next month, if you like, um, as opposed to waiting till September. A few things for you to think about, okay? is given what Alex has told you over the last few months about some of these managers we've reviewed and, you know, that the yes they've generated, at least in the Australian shares area. I mean, every other asset class in our model portfolio has done really well. Okay, that, that's a fact. So our outperformance, if you talk about, if you have a look at, our, at those um, tools on the, on the Matrix website, what you'll notice is international shares have outperformed. You'll notice fixed interest has outperformed. You'll notice cash has done okay. You'll notice small companies Australia has done okay. And within international emerging markets and all that done okay. What you'll also notice is the Australian share area has not done okay. And ultimately what we're really talking about here is the difficulty in large cap, large company Australian <coughs> share fund, fund managers in beating the market. Now interestingly about two weeks ago I went to a Russell presentation. Russell as you know has two businesses in Australia these days. They have the multi-manager business which is trying to pick the best active managers and they have the ETF business which is what they brought in from the US. Russell has done their own research and has actually got over a 20 year period have proven that large, large fund managers, as in the fund managers that have got the big brand names, consistently do not outperform. Now, I don't think any of us are terribly surprised, but what's interesting is this is research from a person or a company that actually focuses on trying to find active management. So that's the first thing. So absorb that. The next thing they've said is that companies, fund managers who have large investment teams underperform boutique managers. Again, I don't think anybody's going to be falling off their chair with shock, but again, that's the research. Okay. Thirdly, they've also identified asset classes which consistently allow managers to outperform and asset classes which consistently don't really give managers much scope for outperforming. Now, no big surprises here. If you're trying to invest in the US market, large cap, you've got no hope of outperforming. In fact, you've virtually got a 100% chance, even if you pick the best fund manager, you will still underperform the index. However, as not to be funny here, but if you were in Canada, your, your average Canadian fund manager, even your worst Canadian active fund manager, is actually outperforming the Canadian stock market. Okay, and interestingly, small companies consistently outperform. So again, I don't think anybody will be falling off their chair, but it's supported by research. Now, I'll be getting that research sometime between now and next month, and Alex and Anna and I will review and we'll do our thing. But the upshot of this is we're looking at our model portfolios with a very specific view to this, is that we've always believed that some asset classes give managers the scope to outperform and some managers just clearly don't. And 
I think we've got research to back it. So on that basis, you will very likely be seeing some good changes, some significant changes in the next model. Uh, you will very likely be seeing some more direct exposure. I think we've just we've dipped our toe in the water last review with ETFs and you know a little bit of passive investment. I think you'll see an extension of that. Um, based on our previous discussion at the research committee, there's, a, there's an openness to look at that. Um, we aren't going to rock everyone's world though. I think that what we'll do is we'll create, we'll keep a standard version of a model and then extend ourselves with a, you know, the matrix preferred, you know, this is every asset class in its perfect slot model. Okay, and that could well mean, for example, um, direct equities, for example, as being its perfect slot because clearly, you know, some areas you're know, better off not in, not in a fund. And some areas you definitely are better in a fund, like international fixed interest, clear as day, you should be in a managed fund. So I hope that all makes sense, guys. Um, I think that's just about it. On the last page, you'll see the locked up funds. Uh, for those of you who may or may not be aware, um, One Path Mortgage Fund, the old ING Mortgage Fund, went forward with a very large release of capital during the month. I think it was 23 cents. Um, there will be a haircut to the unit price, but finally there looks like a final breakdown of this lockup. So for those of you who got pension clients with this sort of money in there, uh, they will have the choice of releasing funds, as you know. Um, ASIC is putting pressure on these fund managers. We are putting pressure on these fund managers. Um, they are scared to death of having unit price falls. And um, I think what, what's, what's really happening there is they're getting to a point where they're saying, well, if we can accept you know, 90 cents in the dollar, maybe that's acceptable. Um, and then that's what that's what allowing that's for example what's allowing one path to release their mortgage fund to a to a large extent. Um, what we're not seeing obviously is those other funds doing the same just yet. It will happen. Um, I realise it's extremely frustrating. Um, everybody's got pressure on these guys. They're obviously arguing back that it's in the best interest of all the unit holders to maintain a unit price. Um, and bear in mind they are still issuing income. So that's the story with those guys. Whew, look, I've literally taken the hour. Um, obviously, I would love to take questions after this. I'll hand you over to Alex, who'll do the, um, the roll call. And then uh, for any of you who want to stay online, please, please stay online until Alex is finished with the roll call so people can hear each person's name because sometimes we get a lot of beeping at this end. Thanks a lot, guys. And um, thanks again for listening. Thanks, Rick. Just uh, quickly, once again, I'll call out those who RSVP'd. And then if you didn't hear your name called, please just call it out at the end. David Bird and Paul Ellis, Greg McCurdy, Grant Andrew and Sue from Advantage One, Natalie Bodon, Gavin Moore, Bev Carline, Tony Carline and Greg Woods, Cherie Green and Mark Wall, David Spearingly, Bruce Killingly, Brendan Minahan, Thomas Telford, Ross Marshall, Barry Vanderberg and Andrew Grinsell, Andrew Parr, Vicky Hagley, B. Ong, Michael Williams and Zelton, Chris Blake, Clay Malloy, Mike Ridge. Is there anyone else I haven't caught? Rolanda Adams. Thanks, Rolanda. Peter Buzzer. Thanks, Peter. Greg Walkington. Thanks, Greg. Jason Danju. Thanks, Jason. Did you get mine, Ellie? Zurada. Thanks, Zurada. Thanks. Thanks, Kirby. Sorry, I missed that one? Damien Kirby. Thanks, Damien. Aaron Dollars. Thanks, Aaron.
Anyone else? Did you get more Alex and Max, John and Boris? Okay, thanks, Max. Didn't we have Max? Oh, yeah. did I? Did yeah, I? sure. Oh, maybe not. Maybe no, I'd say. Sorry, there was somebody else who spoke Sorry. whilst Max was as well. Alison. Oh, Alison. Oh, Alison. <laughs> oh okay. <Ooh. laughs> Thanks, Alison. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Okay, is there anybody else? Hi, Rick. It's uh, Michael and Mitch from Hunter Financial. How are you, mate? Hey, Thank good you. Stuff. Thanks, guys. Cheers, guys. You got mine at the start. We got you, Max. Yeah, no trouble. You didn't read it out. I thought my phone wasn't working. No, 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 no. You're all so, good. Sorry, Max, who's there with you? John and Boris. And Boris, sorry. Thank you. Okay, anybody else? Last calls? All out? Okay, thank you so much, guys. If anybody wants to hang up, they're free to do so. Um, and I will, in about um, 10 seconds, call questions. We all good? We're all good? Boy, that's a good continue. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. See ya. See you, Z. Catch you later, guys. Have a great weekend. Okay, sounds like all the hanging up has all been done. Has anybody got any questions for me? Uh, Rick, uh... I'm not sure whether you're aware, but I got quite a surprise. Um, we've got some clients going to term deposits at the moment, and um, Oasis uh, reduced their uh, rates on the term deposits um, on the 90 day rate, 5.6. Sorry, you're just breaking up, Michael. Can you just say that a, say that a little? I, I got quite a surprise. Um, we've got placed uh, a client into um, a term deposit, and uh, 90 day rate, um, Oasis. From uh, 6% to 5.6. Wow, there you go. I get some um, emails from the foreign in their term deposit rates last week that this change. Yeah. Did well, you any lead on notice from that? Yeah. Um, a, bank, a bank's view on term deposits, remember it's a fixed rate for a period of time, is their expectation of what interest rates are doing. Um, I suppose the only inference I can give there is they think rates are going to fall. Um, the other side of this as well is that um, the banks will tend to boost term deposit rates when they need funding, when they can't get it elsewhere. So that, okay. that gives me a pretty indi clear indication that perhaps ANZ doesn't need funding from, um, is getting funding cheaper from other sources, let's put it that way. I mean, look, you look at it from a term deposit situation, you go, what a bugger. You look at it from a, a client market perspective and you say, well, hang on, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, do you realise that if you bought Westpac, Westpac dividend is higher than the term deposit? Now, I'm not necessarily saying you buy Westpac stock just by itself, but do you, do you understand what I'm saying in terms of the overall discussion with investing? Yes. And this is, this is that client, this is, where, yeah, this is one of the key things that that client presentation is going to talk about, is, you know, yes, prices go up and down, but if all you're interested in income is income, then look no further than our biggest four banks, for example. So, um, look, you know, the banks will do whatever they do, mate. I'm, I'm, I'm not... I suppose I'm a little surprised myself, actually, but that they've gone first. But it, at some point or another, term deposits are definitely going to go down. There's no question. Mm. This was more of a thing of while Delton was by the client sort of sending an email. and I, It's just the length of time of this sideways market, this client. Sort of, he's going from being a high-growth investor to 
people are saying, look, I want to be... Michael, can I just stop you there, mate? Michael, this is not the forum to talk about individual investors. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sorry, mate. I mean, this is for everybody to talk big picture stuff because really, I mean, the, the individual investment thing, I'll defer you to, to Alex and, and Anna. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks, mate. Much appreciated. Has anybody else got any other questions? Yeah, Rick, it's John Carroll. Yeah, John. x Property, which is now the 360 Capital yeah. Fund, they did a press release a few months ago and there was a lot of stuff in there but nothing about possible redemptions. I communicated with them by email and they said they're not going to uh, address this at the moment but they might look at it in the future. So would Alex be able to follow that up for us? 360 Kevin. 360 Kevin. Yeah, Alex is writing this down on his notepad as we speak. Thanks, buddy. Okay, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Good on you, mate. Which one? That's another observation, too. It's the expect About the um, national broadband network. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they said that uh, there were going to be underground cables everywhere. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the um, politicians noticed in Nowra that they've got cables all over telephone poles there. And the costs that were quoted... Um, now the actual cost, costs are going to be about 32% more than what they quoted originally. Yeah. Well, it's, you know what it comes down to? When has the when has the government ever come in under budget? Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, look, I, I think it's very hard. It, it's going to be very hard to have a review discussion with your clients this year without being political. Yeah. And and I think and uh, you know I, I suppose another point on that client presentation is the matrix. Um, in support of you guys have specifically gone there because we don't think that you can purely talk about investment markets with, and, and just ignore every, like everything that's going on, all the shenanigans are going on at the moment because you know, if I really wanted to be critical about this, all of the world's problems come down to you know, effectively three or four big governments and Australia's government for us because we're Aussie obviously, but um, you know, if, if, if the governments were letting the businesses do what they do best, we probably wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you should say that because Max and I did a review of a client yesterday and we, we talked about that and that, they were pretty peed off with labour. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that, that's the sort of messages that you'll see as well. Yeah. Okay, guys, any other questions? Any more? No. Ooh. Yeah, Rick. Yo. Uh, Paul Ellis, mate. Um, what... If the Yanks decide to um, pass this thing, is, I mean, is that going to make a great difference to the market? Like, you know, that's one scenario, and if they don't pass it, we're going to be in the Armageddon that um, Mr. Obama keeps talking about. Um, there, there is an element of... Oh, I mean, boy, you got me on a crystal ball here. Look, there, if you talk Armageddon, what, what he's talking about is if they don't pass the bill, and S&P, and then, let's say, Moody's downgrades the US the US will be forced to pay a high interest rate for all its debt. Therefore, if I was a creditor, sorry, a debtor to the US, I'd be saying, well, how certain am I the US is ever going to pay my debt? Therefore, there's a real question as to the strength of the US economy. Therefore, you know, I don't want to say it, but economic strife is, is definitely on the horizon. Now, so he's quite right to say, you know, stop screwing around, you know, you're playing with people's lives because, quite frankly, they are. And, and I, you know, I don't want to make light of this. It is a very serious situation. Um, S&P and Moody's in themselves um, have an inordinate amount of power. And I, th I find it amazing that given, that given that they actually snowballed the GFC, that here we are again in a situation where they can snowball the, the US. 
So it's it's just amazing. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things that like end of the like end of the day, the fundamental basis of most of the world's economies with the businesses we're buying, people are still buying iPads, they're still going to Woolworths, and um, they're still buying their TVs. The the problem is that there is so much uncertainty around people's uh, business models and people's ability to get debt that it's stopping the normal growth that would that would normally happen. So, and that's that's what's holding the market back. I mean, the the markets themselves are actually not expensive. As I mentioned, I mean, the example that Alex has dug up, where you know the Australian market right now, you know, if you excluded all that silliness, right now would be, you know, of of significant value. But you can't ignore the fact of all this stuff that's going on, and that's the problem. So that'd be the problem, wouldn't it? I mean, like tenement into it, then, you know, if this doesn't get through, then everyone says, well, you know, sell, 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 and we all go into a yeah. raving. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, the thing is, if, if the Chinese wanted to take over the world yeah, without, without firing a gun, this is one pretty, you know, pretty, pretty easy way to do it. Because for every, every minute or every day goes past that the US is, is contracting, in terms of not maybe not GDP, but in terms of you know economic power in the world, the Chinese are growing, you know, and you know one of the it, it's funny to realise. I mean, the Chinese were the number one superpower for you know 1,500 of the last 2,000 years. So, you know, you could argue are they simply just getting back to where they were? It's um, but the US. Chinese just as much as the Chinese did the US, don't they? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was just going to say the Chinese have no motivation to dump treasuries because remember their their entire, or sorry, not their entire, a large proportion of their overall resource, uh, federal resource base or uh, reserve is actually in US treasuries. So there's no must. They basically call an early, early an aerial strike on themselves if they were to dump them. But should the US want to come crawling for more debt? The Chinese have got every right to say, well, last week you paid me 2.95% for a 10-year bond. Today you're going to pay me 3.6, let's say. Yeah. And that, that is what Obama's scared to death of. Yeah. Thanks, Ray. No worries. Any other questions, guys? Thanks, Rick. No worries. I think we'll call it an afternoon. Have a wonderful weekend, guys. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. See you then. Thank Cheers. You. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.